Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know, not to know what you believe or why you believe it. What's important is that you are on this journey with other people. And two of those people are those that lead this podcast and lead the conversation here. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And we're coming to you on Monday. Um, We're recording this on Sunday, but Monday will be the day before the anniversary of George Floyd's murder on May 25th. And a lot has happened in the last year as we come upon that day. And um, it's a lot of it for white people is rather new, including myself. When George Floyd was uh, murdered, I then had to discover a lot more about what it meant to be a white man, what it meant to be a, a person in the United States, what it meant to be a Christian. And it started this journey of a lot of learning, a lot of awareness, a lot of recognition of voices that I hadn't been paying attention to before. And it led to uh, a full year of heartache, of uh, partnering with people of color and getting to this place where we can really critically, well, at least I can really critically analyze as best as I can right now, uh, my whiteness and what that means for the rest of us, especially within the church. And along that journey, you know, there have been some notable books this past year. There's been White Fragility. There has been How to Be an Anti-Racist and and several others that, you know, if I start listing them, I'm just going to miss some of them. But one of them more recently in this whole conversation about uh, that's been growing um, this past year is the one that we're going to talk about today, which is Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, Ryan, would you mind kind of telling us a little bit about Jesus and John Wayne, of what's going on there? Sure. Let me give you the subtitle, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Um, ooh, boy. She, <laughs> light, uh, light reading, right? <laughs> she doesn't pull any punches in the title. That They do that on purpose, so you read, read yeah, you by buy the it. book. Yeah, <laughs> but um, anyway, it's by Dr. Kristen Copes-Dumet. Dumetz, Dumay, I don't know how to say it, but um, she teaches at Calvin, I think. Anyway, the the book kind of is a historical, well, it is a historical look. She's a historian, um, and she looks at uh, trying to define the conception of what masculinity is for evangelical and conservative Christians. Um, she's, I mean, she starts pretty far back, but most of the book focuses on, what would you say, the 1920s to the present, kind of? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she talks a lot about, um, uh, you know, everybody from obviously John Wayne <laughs> to Billy Graham to James Dobson to Donald Trump to et cetera, and, and many characters in between, um, looking at what uh, what definitions evangelicals came up with in terms of how they view and conceive of masculinity, and then the effects that that those views of masculinity have had on evangelicalism as a faith and America, you know, the United States as a nation as well. Um, full disclosure: I've read about sixty percent of the book, so I'm not done yet. <laughs> um, it's a tough book to read. You start reading it, and you're like, "Oh, oh boy, it's so enlightening!" But it is so depressing. So, I mean, I I've been reading it on my Kindle, and I told Nate the other day that I'm only sort of joking that I had to 
constantly refrain from throwing the Kindle across the room because of how horrifying and depressing some of like, uh, we're not, we're not going to really do a book review partly because we haven't read the whole book, but more because we want to talk about her thesis and broad conclusion rather than, um, you know, specifics, the specifics. But I will say that even having read 60% of the book, She's on to something here, something big. And um, there's probably small places you could quibble with certain things, certain particulars. But overall, the reason it's so horrifying and made me so angry is because it's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and let me be clear. The general thesis is connecting that subtitle to masculinity. So mm-hmm. the reason why white evangelicals have corrupted a religion is because of their definition of masculinity. Right. Right. Yeah. And I guess to just kind of get that started, she basically argues that the evangelical view of masculinity owes a lot to the, uh, to John Wayne and not that John Wayne as himself, like drove this specifically as much as John Wayne typified, um, and became the archetype that evangelical men um, decided was the way that men should be. Okay, so John Wayne, I remember watching, my dad likes these, you know, the West John Wayne Western movies, mm-hmm. and I've seen Sands of Iwo Jima and, um, gosh, what was the, some of the other big ones? But I've seen quite a few of these when I was a kid. And, and in all of these movies, John Wayne is tough. He basically takes no shit from anybody. He um, does whatever he wants, treats people however he wants, because he's right. He's he's a man. He's a man's man, you know. And um, yeah, also is a racist piece of shit. But (laughs) anyway, also and has, you know, is abusive and has was married three or four times. But as we've learned in the recent past, none of that matters because what they really wanted was to be that way, even to the point of deciding that. Um, and I hope I'm not getting ahead of us here, but even to the point of deciding that all of these things they saw in John Wayne are actually the biblical way that men should be to the point of they are, she argues that they believe Jesus um, lives in a similar way. Yeah. So we're going to get to where, where that conclusion is, or at least where that type is described in the book, because we haven't read through the whole thing to get to the conclusion. I needed to take a break from my mental and emotional health. Yeah. But I did want to make a quick note because we opened this with George Floyd and led to masculinity. What we're going to say, we're not going to make that connection very clearly today because we're still figuring it out. We still don't know how these two are clearly connected. We believe they are, and mm-hmm. the research that she shows uh, helps make that case quite well. But to articulate that, to bring that out, it'd be very hard for us to do in an hour, let alone uh, you know, in this format. What we want to do is we want to open ourselves up to a critical look at who we are as Christians. And even though I myself might not identify as an evangelical. Um, she names my Lutheran church body yeah. several times, uh-huh. and I can very clearly see how my church body is uh, evangelical in a lot of its cultural expressions. Well, certainly. and especially this one, I imagine you were fed the same bullshit about we were, masculinity. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, yeah, it's been yeah. endemic to Christianity in America. And, and there are going to be a lot of connections to 
racial stereotypes, racial um, or racism, and uh, even within uh, conversations around policing and so forth that this book can bring out. And we just want to be very careful that we're not doing an injustice to that conversation by going too quickly, by skipping over things that you may not know about. And what we just want to focus on today is that what Ryan said, that masculinity. What is that masculinity? I think a good place to start, you, you got us to where we're going to end with John Wayne, but let's start with the whole question of the quest for masculinity. So as Ryan said, this kind of started in the 1920s. Um, the, the next 40 years after that seemed to be very pivotal for her and her description of what masculinity came to be for evangelicals. And we're not going to go into that because you can, of course, read that. But so we want to start by defining and describing masculinity, at least according to a few characteristics, uh, so that we are on the same page of, of what we're talking about. So what's one of the things that you noticed of evangelical masculinity as you were reading that, Ryan? Right. So as they're going on this quest, these are the things that to define it. These are the things that seem to be central to it. Um, yeah, one of the one of the main ones, um, I think, was that men are supposed to be strong, but not just in a physical sense, although that too, but men are supposed to be aggressive and um, fighters, this idea. Warriors, I think, honestly, is is the way you could encompass all of this part of it. There's other things, too, but the warrior was a big one. Um, everything from. um glorifying soldiers, especially in World War One and and really World War Two, mm -hmm. um, even on through Vietnam and, you know, after uh, this idea that a manly man is one who fights. Right. So the the, the person who has realized ideal um, who is the ideal man, who is the man that we should all want to be if we're men, uh, is the one who is aggressive, who is powerful, who is a fighter. Um, and that was applied everything from within the family. So one who fights for his woman, <laughs> um, who fights to earn and win his woman, because that's depressingly how it was viewed, um, to the point of on a national sense, like uh, the you know, America needs to be tough and aggressive because that's how men should be. Um, I think that was one of the first big ones that I noticed was this idea that men should be aggressive warriors. Yeah, I think another one is, I don't know how she would put it, but um, I would put it with uh, control. Mm -hmm. um, men should be in control. Uh, the, and again, that ranges like um, that, that comes to the superpower idea of uh, America and why the Cold War could be a thing. Um, it goes down to the family household with uh men and women and the relationship and their children and how that all works out. It goes to the provider idea of, of men being the providers and women being at home. That's another piece of it, but certainly providers. Uh, and you don't have to even put the family into that. If men don't work, mm -hmm. they are seen as worthless. Um, worthless. And yeah. boy, we're seeing a lot of that right now. And mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I think another one that's related, and we may have said some of this already, but this idea that men men have to not just be strong physically and aggressive and warriors and that sort of thing, but men need to be strong internally, uh, emotionally, um, spiritually, all of it in the sense that 
men know the answers. Um, men aren't wishy-washy, right? Men get what they want because that's how you be a man. You go out there, you say what you want, you do what you want because you know what is right. You know what is best. You don't need, you know, you're not creating a focus group to figure out what to do. You know what to do because you're the man and you are the leader. Yeah. That's a good word for it. Leader. Yeah. We've got uh warrior leader and mine could be manager or um overlord. Master. I think yours is honestly master. master. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I know yeah. that that is a charged word, but I think given yeah. how they uh, talk about all those things, I think it's the one that applies the most. Yeah. I like that. Master. Well, I mean, I hate it, but yes. yeah. Well, I like it as a. <laughs> I know. I'm being a this. jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so there. So if we were to tie a particular attribute to each of those, I wonder what it would be. Warrior is pretty simple. That would mm -hmm. be power. Right. Power. power is what you need. I probably already did it. Master is is control. Uh-huh. What would a leader be? Um, um yeah, what would we tie leader to? Confident, secure, assertive. Assertive? Assertive, yeah, I yeah. like that. Confidence, even both of yeah. those. I think mm -hmm. that's good. Or maybe um, honestly, arrogance. I mean, there's and I that sounds like because I'm already trying to argue how terrible it is, because you're not gonna be surprised as we get there later. <laughs> yeah. This is all toxic bullshit. But um, like there is a there is a kind of arrogance or even narcissism to that. But I guess for this part, we can stick with confidence assertive. is a good word for yeah. that because it's like both, like people view confidence in both ways. Mm -hmm. So but the, it's like supreme confidence. It's right, not just yeah. like, I'm fairly sure I'm right. It's I make right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I define what right is because of my penis. And I think we could probably tie each of those things to certain elements of the events that were occurring that time. Like mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, so we have this phrase for the people who fought in World War II, we call them the greatest generation, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of that has that warrior sense around it. Like they did, they fought the Nazis. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty huge. Um, you know, they also fought the Japanese and other people, but they fought the, the Nazis, and that's what good men do: is they fight fight evil as warriors. And so, I could certainly see that whole—I don't want to say myth, um, because well, uh, I think it is. I think it does almost have mythic qualities. To yeah, it like in, in the uh, C.S. Lewis way, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh, like yeah. this grand story. I was going to say narrative is the next thing, but yeah, I mean, it's almost the like the platonic ideal of a man. Is, is what these people are trying to, to live towards, right? There yeah. is this man out there that we are all trying, supposed to all be trying to to be. And we saw a lot of that in World War II. And, and men who came home, now it's not everyone's experience, but men who came home after that were generally <laughs> celebrated. You have that mm -hmm. iconic photo in New York City where um, the guy's kissing someone right, who right. turns out not to be. Yeah, it turns related. out she wasn't on board. Uh, <laughs> Which um, is awful, but still, yeah. I mean, it's also quintessential to this kind of mask. Anyway. And she even talks about how later in after the Vietnam War, when that hero worship wasn't the same, yeah. most of the Christian leaders that she brings up in this, all not just random people. I mean, people like uh, John Sunday Piper, and, Billy Sunday, oh, yeah. he has before John Piper, but that kind of person. Um, we're arguing that, no, 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 these these men didn't mm -hmm. do those evil things because they're good American men and they right. wouldn't have done it. 
Yeah. And many of them supported the war all the way through Vietnam. Even to this day, they yep. still support or would have and do until their dying breath. Yeah. Vociferously. Yeah. 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 So yeah, there's that warrior. It's deeply tied, which we're going to talk about a bit later, deeply tied to our military experiences, our wars and mm-hmm. specifically world war two. Right. Well, and the, and the warrior thing was also tied to uh, relationships with wives and our families, like even to the point of there's that awful book, uh, Wild at Heart. It was from the 2000s, right? But it yeah. picks up on this idea of men are supposed to fight for their mm-hmm. woman, right? The the woman who wants to be rescued by her dashing Prince Charming. And, and so like men are supposed to be warriors. A lot of them even before that in like Dobson and, and others talk about how mm-hmm. um, Boys will create a will will play with guns even if they only have their fingers to use because right. they're fighters and they're aggressive and you should wrestle with them if you really want them to be good men because if you don't they'll turn gay. I mean that's that's literally yeah. the thing that mm-hmm. was a uh, anyway. So like this idea of a warrior is something that was applied on a national stage, um, patriotic patriotically to the and then all the way down to the individual family unit. Um, where men are not being men like they should if they are passive or if they um, let their wives be in control or whatever. So what would be some scriptures that come up around this idea of masculinity? (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just laughing because I don't think there are any. But anyway. um, (laughs) Well, they would use scripture, right? right? right. So yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's not hard to see that that the Bible is full of martial imagery, right? Is that the right word? Um, is full of war and death right. and killing, especially in the Old Testament. But even well, Joshua in the, and mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament, right? Um, certainly things like the armor of God, but they would bring up a lot of um Jesus in the temple driving out the money changers, okay. making yeah. a whip of cords, right, and yeah. going to town. Um, and then the other one that came up a lot, um, I think in a way to sidestep a lot of what Jesus says that doesn't fit with this picture is Jesus in revelation, um, Mm -hmm. as the warrior on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth and, you know, creating bloodbaths wherever he goes, um, at the end of, uh, you know, at Armageddon and and the end there. Because most, if not all of these people are of the premillennial or at least dispensational, um, groups who view Revelation like that, right? So Revelation, especially that part is about the future. And so they can say, well, see, Jesus isn't a, 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 isn't an effeminate pacifist. He's a manly man with a sword that that would come up a lot as a way to use the Bible to justify this idea of the, the warrior man. I think in my circles, because we didn't have that, right. We thought we don't think uh, we don't read revelation that way. I think for us, it was actually David. The more I thought about it, David and Goliath, especially with David being in the messianic line and David being a man after God's own heart, Mm -hmm. um, you know, David, takes offense of um, Goliath speaking terribly about God and he goes and he kills the guy and cuts off his head, right? Like (laughs) men are supposed to do. Yeah, like men are supposed to do. Apparently. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's where we are. And so, you know, like I said, I'm not into this interpretive move, but I think that it's there for evangelicals and people like us who are evangelical leaning. 
Um, so if we connect power to that, um, where where do we see control? So the other one, that, one of the other two that mm -hmm. we talked about was master and control. Mm -hmm. Where do we see control uh, playing out? One of the ways that I see this happen is actually within the salvation narrative where uh, the church has control over who's saved and who's not. There's this narrative of, um, you know, admitting your sins and, you know, you kind of give all the power to the person, the Christian in charge by the man in charge. being super, yeah, the man in charge being uh -huh. super vulnerable and showing your weakness and all that. And um, that gives control to the Christian to then dictate mm -hmm. how this conversion is happening. And to be honest, most of the time, it's just relatively good at that moment, at least, of saying, yeah, hey, you did everything you need to do. Jesus loves you and so on and so forth. But then because they have control over that pivotal moment, they also have control over uh, much of the faith life. And so we're, we're dealing with that a lot right now with a lot of the cultural issues, to be quite honest, because we have um, lived in a narrative where men and especially learned men have the have the control over the faith that they get to be the ones in their own minds and in the cultural mood to decide what's right and what's wrong. So we're going to cast out gays. We're going to cast mm -hmm. out women. We're going to cast out people of color because they're not part of the story. They're not well, part because of what's going what on. Their part in the story is to be subservient to straight white men. There you go. Like that that's their God-given role. Yeah. Um, whether it's women or or non-white people or trans people or gay or whoever it is. Like, well, some of those people shouldn't exist at all in this viewpoint, right? right? Yeah. But everybody else has a God-ordained role of subservience to the straight white man. That's that's how God has designed things, is what they see. And you could they they can tie that to a few different places. Um, Paul's a great place if you're looking for that, where you can find it. Where you know Paul says a lot about women being subservient to men mm -hmm. and women not being in church leadership. Um, all of these kind of things. Um, slaves obeying your masters. Slaves obey your masters. Yep. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I think there's it's it's not hard to see. Uh, how they linked those two, whether they should be or not, is a different question. But they certainly became um, uh, inextricably linked in the 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 evangelical or conservative zeitgeist when it came to this kind of this question specifically. Yeah, you touched on it kind of implicitly. Let's bring it out a bit because um, for most males, it's not about theology; it's about their life mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, we, we have gender roles and other stuff playing in here. So Adam and Eve come in, man mm -hmm. created first, uh, woman created second, and that's supposed to be an order for creation well, and, and an order yeah. for life. And they bring up the idea that the fall happened because Eve convinced right. him. Yeah. Also bullshit. Um, sorry, I got to stop that. We're not to that part of the episode yet. Um, also the idea I don't know, that we're kind of going there as, uh, <laughs> as the curse that was put on the woman was that she would desire to rule over her husband, which they would, they interpret to say that's not how it's supposed to be. Right. right? Um, some of them even would say that before the fall, that Adam was still in dominion over her because that was, as they say, their idea of the orders of creation as God has, as God had mm -hmm. set them up. You also get a little bit of this with, um, 
for me, I see it so easily in cultural issues because we want control over the narrative, control over what's being said. So it's really easy to pick apart some of these or at least point them out. So you've got environmentalism being mm -hmm. part of this too, because man has control over the earth. You know, we are told to subdue it in some translations to subdue the earth and make it ours. And so environmentalism becomes a thing and global warming would be something climate change as we now, um, well, there are two different things, but climate change now that we talk about more than global warming. So I think there's a big piece of it there. Uh, honestly, I think if you look at just how people, uh, the, the main arguments in cultural theology, you're probably going to find the aspect of control. You'll find power too, but when it comes to man having power over things, he has power over his family, over his, um, well, his wife specifically. But his children too. His children too. Uh -huh. His world <laughs> and his religion. Funny enough, not his job because uh, other men could be over him. And so right, but even but, then, a man is in control. Man, right. right, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so we, we're kind of going fast. I, don't, I hope it's not too fast. Well. But I mean, it's a long book. You should read it. It's, It'll make yeah. you angry, but it's worth reading. But uh, I, I think I think that's probably enough for giving an, the gist of it enough to talk about, you know, what uh, not okay. not to like evaluate the book. This isn't we're not trying to give you a book review um, as much as I think. And, you know, you can chime in here. But I think one way to, that would be helpful is to ask. So did you see this perspective of masculinity? Like, is this what you were taught growing up by, you know, either just in your family or in the church? So I think there are two layers. One, at the very least, this was definitely assumed. Uh, I don't think it was ever assumed differently. Like there'd be little minor talking points here and there about like, I remember this conversation a lot about what happens if the husband gets laid off from the job and the and the wife is working? What do you do about that? And I'm like, today, it's like, what do cares? you mean? What do you do about that? You thank God that you still have income because your wife is willing to work. <laughs> fucking asshole. Sorry. Yeah, but I mean, that that's a talking point, right? That's, uh, well, I don't want to say talking point, but it's it fits within this problem or this quest for masculinity of hey, if I don't have control by being the breadwinner, uh, another phrase, then so so it was always assumed there'd be those conversations there. Uh, I think it was taught, but for me, it was mostly taught around orders of creation. Hmm. Uh, I can tell you without a doubt, orders of creation is such a big thing for us hmm. that whenever we talk about manhood or womanhood, it's within that paradigm. It's within that description. Uh, whether or not we went full on board to to move into power and control and everything else, like we've discussed, you know, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. Like as I don't know if Ryan said this on the podcast, but as I'm reading this book, nothing's really surprising me. It's just like, oh, this is back to my childhood or back mm -hmm. to this, that, or the other. And yeah. so I. Yes, the answer. That's a long way to say mm -hmm. yes, because I've got to feel some time. But yes, uh, <laughs> I have seen that either implicitly of just assuming that that's the case, or teaching orders of creation, and uh, you know, around marriage, this is another one that comes up. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to sure. go through pastoral counseling in our our yeah. 
thing. And usually the pastoral counseling is theological doctrination or indoctrination about how men are supposed to be in control and powerful right. and blah, blah, blah. You women are just lucky to have us. Well, some of us. Um, <laughs> what about you? Yeah. I assume that because this is an evangelical description, it's pretty apt for you. Yeah, you guys can't see me right now, but I've been nodding the whole time. I will say that orders of creation didn't come up in the same way as it did for you. I don't mm. remember that being explicitly talked about in that way, but certainly was behind a lot of it. Um, and I remember... As I think back on it, certainly the purity culture stuff mm, yeah. uh, has a lot of this, like she brings that out. And I remember reading that section, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, you know, that right. that was all about this, um, this idea of how men and women are supposed to be. And um, I think, uh, I think it was certainly in the church. I think it was also, this wasn't just in the church, like, um, this does go back to like in society of like how boys are supposed to play and not play and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, right. But so like, I know <laughs> when I was a kid, I didn't fit all of those things. Um, I know I even had a, like a, a ver like big for a kid. I had like a kitchen place that where you could pretend to cook things. And okay. um, I don't remember, I feel this could be wrong, but I feel like I remember my dad saying he, he resisted that for a little bit at first. And then mm -hmm. thankfully decided like, who cares, whatever, just let him be happy, you know? Um, so, I mean, that kind of stuff was all in there just for all of us. And then you have in the church where they pour on the theological dimension of this is how God has set these things up, that these gender roles, uh, as you know, we believe in them, have been ordained by God, whether through the orders of creation or marriage was a place that came up a lot, certainly if they talked about sex. Um, but even even if it wasn't just sex, there would be times where, you know, they'd in youth group, they'd separate the boys and the girls and oh, yeah. and the, and often that was about sex. But sometimes it was just about how to be men, like godly men. And that usually involved ideas of leadership. And um, nobody said master or control. But I mean, I think that was. I think that was in there too. So that was my very long-winded way of saying, yes, <laughs> this was very much, I think, baked into um, yeah. certainly in culture writ large, like society in America, but also then this particular spin on it or justification for it perhaps um, was definitely, definitely abounded <laughs> yeah. all over the place. Had you ever gone to a Promise Keepers thing? Um, so I didn't because I was pretty young when that was a thing. My, I didn't. I remember my dad going to them, um, mm -hmm. at least one or two of them. Uh, I don't think he was ever like a, a member, but I do remember that. I remember focus on the family being a very important okay. thing because that was a, one of the big drivers of this kind of stuff. Yep. Um, and then, you know, I don't remember us ever being in like real attuned to like Jerry Falwell and, and et cetera, Pat Robertson and, and such, but they, um, you know, that kind of stuff was certainly in the, in the ether, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, I, I did go to promise keepers I'm you? a little bit older than yeah. you. And I, I do remember going a couple times and, uh, yeah, I don't have much to say cause I was such a young kid. I remember. A couple of my friends went to one with me, um, which I'm sure my dad was completely thrilled about because uh, it was just us. I don't think it was through our church. I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, 
it's a wild experience. Um, you don't really see a lot of men in the same place like that without women, especially singing. That was what the mm-hmm. always stuck out to me because in church, most men don't sing. At least that I've been a <laughs> That's part no of. That's no fun. <laughs> so you would hear a lot of women singing, but when you went to Promise Keepers, it was all male. Um, but that's a whole whole thing that we saw come up too. We don't need to go into that, but that is certainly. Does she talk about Promise Keepers? She does. Um, I think I one of the part. things to to note is that she does talk about how this these views of manhood have kind of ping ponged back and forth sometimes, almost to the point of like. It would go really, really, really far in the aggressive kick ass and take names direction. And then something like Promise Keepers, which emphasized more of uh, it's okay to feel emotions and be tender and you can still be a man that way. Of course, then there was still, even in that, there was always this, but even so, overarching, over whatever, uh, over all of it was this idea that the same ideas. Because then what would seem to happen is then there'd be a reaction to that and it'd swing back the other direction. Mm. Yeah, it would kind of pendulum back and forth between the, okay, we've gone too far on the buckets of blood. And so now we need to go back towards, no, we need to be a little more tender like Jesus was, but then, oh, nope, that's effeminate and gay. So we better, you know, like it would kind of swing back and forth um, from like from Promise Keepers. It went back to now we got to like 9-11 becomes a really big part of this, Mm, especially in terms of the martial imagery and all of that. but it does kind of not meander, but it, that's the wrong word, but it does morph over time, but it always seems to come back to this view of masculinity. That is those things that we, we brought out. Now there might be other ways you could characterize it too, but those are the three that, you know, power control and um, what confidence. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really does feel like um, since we're both practical theologians, it really does feel like, that interaction within culture. And I like that word that we used at the beginning is it's a quest. It's trying Mm -hmm. to figure out masculinity within certain cultural contexts. And that started with the cold war, but then led to nine 11 and now where we are in in Trump. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it does fluctuate, but those three, I mean, we easily saw those three <laughs> in our, um, that's why it's such a scary book because it's so easy to see in, yeah. in our expressions of religion. I kind of, as I was reading it, feel like, like, like Nate said, none of this, like this stuff was not, it was shocking, but it wasn't shocking because I was like, yeah, I, I remember that. Or yes, that makes sense. I think this was the first time I've seen it brought together, uh, brought, brought together in this way. Um, where it's all so much more connected than I realized, um, which I think its systemic quality is what has made it so pernicious and damaging um, that that I had not quite realized the extent of like how much uh, this stuff had bled into everything else. Um, this this uh, well, well, let's just go ahead and say it. What we've been leading to and maybe have said already is this this. Uh, this toxic idea of masculinity. Um, and so maybe what we should say is, okay, so what's wrong with this view? If, if yeah. you are a Christian, what is wrong? I mean, you could, you don't even have to be a Christian. Many people have com- have criticized this idea of masculinity, but um, why don't we start with, okay, so if you're a Christian, what's wrong with this? Uh, what well, do we want to look at each one? Like, or yeah, let's, we just, 
quickly look at each one. We don't have to go very far with them. But So what's wrong with the idea of being a master, whether that's of your wife or your children or, you know, non-white people or whatever it is? If you're a Christian, what's wrong with that, Nate? <laughs> one easy place I could go is where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and he tells them there, um, you know, they probably don't have this view of masculinity because it's not even a thing, but they're uh, quite offended that their rabbi is doing this thing. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, well, if you want to be a part of what I'm doing, this is what it looks like. Um, and usually I'm not somebody who thinks that one verse or one story captures everything about somebody or something. There's a lot of complexity, but that's pretty, that's pretty fucking clear, right? Uh -huh. That's, that's really hard. And he says stuff like the first shall be last. The last shall be first. Uh, and deny yourself. Deny yourself. Yeah. yeah. So putting yourself first is a good way to, to summarize what master means in scriptural language. And Jesus just doesn't. It's very hard to see Jesus in the whole scope of things putting himself first. I mean, hell, he died on the cross. For us and for, you know, the subversion of power in the yeah, world. Jesus's answer to sin, whatever, whatever you want to say, Jesus's plan was to let himself be crucified, uh, penetrated. Okay. Like Jesus's yeah. whole idea of, of this was to do the exact opposite of this idea, right? Like people wanted Jesus to do this kind of thing. They wanted Jesus to, you know, but what Jesus said was, uh, actually, I'm going to be crucified and you should be too. Yeah. Pick up your cross, right? Deny yourself, right. pick up your cross and follow me. How many times just, did this? Yeah. How many times the disciples ask him to uh -huh. become first, right? right? And that they can benefit from that. Yeah, it, first shall be last. It's yeah. everywhere. I mean, it's, and that's just Jesus. We don't even, we didn't even mention like where Paul talks about putting others first or Peter or John, anybody else. Right. I mean, yeah. like, it's just, it's, uh, so this idea that, um, this idea that men in order to be a godly man need to be in control of every facet of existence. Every facet of the universe is um, uh, back ass words. It seems to me <laughs> well, when you look at what Jesus said and how Jesus lived now, yes, there are places where Jesus um, is say, uh, you know, does like, I mean, sure. Jesus tells people what to do sometimes. Right. I mean, yes, they sure they call Jesus master, but not her teacher, rabbi, <laughs> whatever, yeah. but not not in this way, not yeah. in. I don't remember Jesus ever being like um, like Jesus listened to other people. Sure. Jesus taught. Yes. Je but I, it's just deeply frustrating um, to see that this idea of power, this idea of uh, control. Uh, control, I mean, is. is is something that we would build from looking at Jesus or anybody else, really. Um, yeah, it's just mind-boggling. <laughs> well, let's let's continue the confusion. Uh, what does what's so wrong about power when it comes to masculinity? We kind of touched on it because they they do bleed over mm -hmm. into each other quite right. easily. Why is power not 
a good marker of masculinity. Right. That's what I mean. It's not just, I think that's, that's the problem here is that this idea that men are only men if they um, exercise power over other people, whether that's in the master sense or power over the world or whatever it is. Like there's something about if you are not domineering in that way that you have failed as a man, that there is something deeply wrong with not your actions, but wrong with you, right? It's not just that you haven't done something or that you've even like sinned because you you did or didn't do something. This is you are worthless. <laughs> this is you are not good enough because you have been created by God, supposedly, to be this way. So if you're not doing it, then you are wrong. Uh, you are like, intrinsically you are disordered or wrong or disgusting or shameful or whatever you want to say. Yeah. And we, we can look to Paul as we see it modeled by Jesus, of course, because he gives up all of his power. I remember uh, very clearly one of the first things that really struck me as I was growing up in the church where uh, Pilate is asking Jesus, basically, what the hell? You could get out of here if you uh -huh. want to. Why don't you? And he says, uh, basically, in, in the parlance that we're talking about here, uh, I've decided to give up my power for mm -hmm. people. Right. Um, or Jesus says, don't you know? He says this to, um, not to Pilate, but he says, don't you know I could call 10,000 angels? You know? Like, yeah. Clearly, Jesus That's has got power. That's after Peter cuts off uh -huh. the ear? Is that yeah, what it is? Yeah. yeah. It's like, clearly, Jesus has power. Okay? Like, um, yeah. and yet, this is not the way that Jesus... Like, Jesus exercises power through giving it up. Yeah. Jesus doesn't yeah. exercise power through, um, if you'll pardon the phrase, lording it over other people. Yeah, whenever he does the miracles, he tells people to shut up and not talk about <laughs> right. it because it's for that right. person, right? Mm -hmm. It's not for his glory. And then we can turn to Paul. We've got uh, 2 Corinthians 12, where power is made in weakness. That's mm -hmm. huge. For me, the one that I always love, because it's such a mind bender, because it's, uh, I never remember where it's from. It's Corinthians, I think, where Paul says, uh, the power of God, or the weakness is God, mm -hmm. of God is stronger than the power of God, or power yep. of men. And same with wisdom and foolishness. And a lot of people think that's an argument of scale, like God is so powerful that his weakness can even be called more powerful than the power of men. It's like, maybe, but more maybe, so. But I think more so it's that God thinks about power so radically different that the power that we think is implicit in creation even, uh, and in this conversation, in masculinity, is just missing the mark. Mm -hmm. Power is the weakness that Christ shows for all the people that he interacted with and us. So, okay. So, but what about the whole warrior idea, right? Because honestly, in some ways, I think you could argue that's their, well, you, I think you can argue that it's most, uh, it's simultaneously their weakest case and possibly their strongest case. If you're looking at it from scripture in the way that they do. Right. So, on the one hand, I say, yeah, you, you certainly do see Jesus on the white horse, right? With the sword and, you know, like I said, gets to a slaying people. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, putting aside the, the complexity, the complexity of interpreting Revelation specifically in that manner, put that aside, you also see Jesus explicitly say things like, if your enemy <laughs> strikes you, 
turn the other cheek and let him do it again. If they take your coat, give him your pants or whatever it is. That's not right. But whatever he says, Uh, your cloak, I mean, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, if they make you march a mile, march two and it's et cetera. Like love your enemies is is very much not what a warrior does. Right. Right. A warrior uh, does unto others before they before it's done to them, not what you know what I mean? Like uh, a warrior preemptively kills people to protect themselves. A warrior doesn't let themselves be crucified. Um, so like for me, I think it is honestly a pretty weak case just based on what Jesus says, because if your whole justification for it is, yeah, but look at Revelation. Well, I mean, that's enough in and of itself to say, well, hold on here. <laughs> right. You yeah. know. Yeah. Um, well, and for Lutherans, we have a theology, of course, of the cross, which means that a, a very simple sentence to understand the theology of the cross is to say that you know Jesus best when you see him on the cross. Hmm. And you mean for, weak, penetrated, and defeated? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so for me, that's the ultimate confusion within my church body because we have this strong theology of justification that focuses on the cross and yet we choose the warrior Mm. like what so we have to go to the old testament we have to go to jacob we have to go to um david david certainly david joshua would be a big one Um, you know the genocide (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, and i want to go so with that said i want to go a little deeper and we don't have to stay here too long but the question that I always come to is why, why is always my question. So why would a Lutheran or an evangelical choose one over another? And I think, you know, the author of this book highlights historically why, and I don't want to ignore that because there's a lot of sociology there. There's a lot of that. Uh, I want to go towards more philosophy, maybe a little psychology. And I want to know, I want to explore Um, how this all began in her book, which was with the Cold War. And for me, it seems to me that the way that the warrior or what the warrior is responding to is not a threat, but a fear within itself, within himself. We'll say himself. A fear within himself, you've said it several times, to protect himself, to protect that which he loves. And you have to do that um, with power, but you have to do it preemptively because you never know when they're going to do this, that, or the other, right? And I, I don't know if this is a fair characterization. I don't want to say every warrior is afraid. However, when it came to evangelicals, as I was reading this, a lot of it was like, oh, they're just afraid that XYZ, take your mm-hmm. pick, that they're going to lose the culture war when it gets there, That which is such a stupid-ass name, right? Culture war. It makes so much sense now. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're going to lose their place and uh, not be able to identify themselves anymore. Uh, it just seems like a lot of fear. And for me, it's like, I don't know. I've met plenty of Christians who are driven by fear, probably those that hold on to this kind of nonsense, too. and. For me, what I find outside of the frustration of dealing with these stupid arguments um, and stupid thoughts of uh, what it means to be a Christian or a man is just kind of sadness because uh, not in the, oh, poor you, but just the recognition that fear is driving so much of what you do 
And if you let go of that fear or if you gave it to Jesus and you just like realize that you don't have to be the person that has it all put together, what that does for you is just so freeing. Um, you know, the John in his epistles will say perfect love casts out all fear. And maybe that's a secondary component to it. And uh, I don't want to get too into psychologizing, but love seems to be part of that as well, right? I'm I'm going to I'm going to I'm okay. not a psychologist at all, but I think <laughs> I agree with with everything you said. I I think that there a lot of this if well a lot of this is certainly driven by fear. Um I think that the average man is afraid. Um and uh, maybe the average human, but we're talking about men here and you and I are men. So I'll just say, I think most men are afraid because I think fear is part of being human. But in this structure that we're talking about, this evangelicalism or conservative Christians in America, what, however you want to uh, define that, like you said, there's all these things that they've convinced themselves they need to be afraid of and that they need to fight in order to 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 deal with that. I think the other big thing is that I think a lot of this is driven by shame. And what I mean by that is I think part of the reason people like John Wayne or um, George Patton or whoever it is you want to use as these ideal manly men, I think most men look at those and say, well, I'm not like that, right? I'm not saying no... I'm not saying that men are not aggressive or whatever, but I am saying is I think a lot of men look at this stuff and say, yeah, I'm not like that. And so shame drives them to say, but I need to be right. This idea that uh, I'm inadequate and the way for me to be adequate is to do these things that I am not. Now, I don't know, maybe that's not, maybe that's too broad to apply that to everybody, but I, I really think, for a lot of people that's involved, this idea that they don't actually believe they're good enough themselves and so then must uh, create these qualities in themselves so that they no longer feel ashamed of themselves. Um, I don't wanna say it's all because they don't think their dicks are big enough because that's mostly a joke, but that sense of inadequacy I think is what's at play here, whether it's literally that or not. Yeah, so I think both of those, like, again, without psychologizing too much, but I would think this is probably more in line of evangelizing, at least recognizing the, the um, problem. And maybe the problem, which is a tragedy, is that Christian men don't feel loved. Mm -hmm. And so they have to focus on fear or shame and solving that problem instead of giving into those things. I don't know. I think that there's a big piece of that. So it made me start thinking about what can we do to remedy this masculinity, which is around us all the time. It's even within some of us who would look at this and call it toxic. It's, it's just part of what we grew up with. And I'm not really in pursuit or on a quest for a different masculinity necessarily, but I think a first start would be to answer it a bit differently. And, and the way that I'm thinking about this is, especially when it comes to fear, since that's my little thing that I took away so far from the book is this fear that we all have, is instead of trying to find a solution to that fear, maybe we should just embrace it. Hmm. Seems like there's some, some words for that. One of the big words is courage, right? Courage isn't the absence of fear, but it's doing the right thing in, in 
light of Even fear so, or yeah. with fear. Mm-hmm. So maybe one of the ways to to work towards a more I don't want to say masculinity, let's say a more compassionate humanity would be one or even Christian humanity Mm -hmm. would be one that focuses on leaning into our fears, recognizing that every man has those fears and what we do with them is much more important than actually having them. It doesn't make us any lesser. Uh, Yeah. So that's my first thought. My first thought is I think that the idea of masculinity as a construct is bullshit. And, <laughs> and what I mean by that is I'm not even just talking about gender as a social construct kind of stuff, although that sure. I think more what I mean is what is masculine? It's what men do. And that can, I'm sorry, literally be anything. Right. Yeah. There, there is nothing inherently masculine about boys playing with guns or if a boy wants to put on a dress that's just as masculine. Like there is I, I really don't think there's anything inherently masculine or feminine about those sorts of things. I mean, I'm not saying that there's no biological difference between men and women, but even that there's it's complicated because of, you know, people who um don't identify as any gender or who are trans or whatever but right. i just think this idea that men need to be anything other than what jesus tells us all humans need to be is nonsense like i i think a lot of some of not well let's put it this way there's a fair amount of trauma in my life that i think could have been avoided if i wasn't trying to live up to some um arbitrary standard that was imposed right like i like to cook and that's not masculine or feminine that's me making food so i don't (laughs) die like i think yeah so i don't know i I think like even to the point of should we be looking to jesus for how what it means to be a man uh no (laughs) you know we should look to jesus for what it means to be human but this idea that, I don't know, am I going too far with that? Like, I'm not trying to say there's no difference between men and women or that, um, or other genders. But what I, all I'm trying to say is that this idea that men have to do X, Y, or Z or A through Z is, I don't, I don't buy it. Well, that speaks into your thing, right? So mine was fear. And so take courage and, and lean into that. Yours is shame, which is built around Men have to be a certain way. And when you look at what that definition is, no matter what that definition is, there are going to be people who don't fall within it. And so a remedy to shame would be to say uh, there is nothing particularly masculine except all of it's masculine because men do all of that. Right. And, you know, you could look at individual things like are men more aggressive than women? maybe, but is it that, is that a biological thing or is that because we've taught men to be aggressive and women not to be right? Um, or they are all men aggressive, right? No, and no. not all men are aggressive. <laughs> no. And, and that's, but that's fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's good. Uh, in fact, I don't know if we all need to be aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So well, I, on the same side, not all men are passive, right? right. And not all women are passive. They're going to be and I like that because it's moving it to humanity rather than male, female. And we're not even talking about gender roles or gender differences, right? That's a whole nother conversation for another time. Right now, it's just like, what does it mean to be masculine? And a way to combat the shame is like, okay, well, what do men like doing? Um, yeah. Are you a man? Everything. Then you're masculine. Great. 
or yeah. not. Like that's the whole point. You don't have to be masculine. You are, if you are a biological man, or if you are a uh, identify as a man, then you're a man. <laughs> like it's. I really think it's as easy as that. We've we've so complicated this with with bullshit. Um, you know, I hope I said that the right way. Uh, my larger point that I'm trying to make is this is all arbitrary and nonsense. And we've, we've, uh, steeped people in fear and shame and, and, um, self-loathing because of all of this. And I don't, I'm sorry, you don't find it in the Bible unless you an anachronistically put it there. Yeah. And like the ultimate goal for me would be what does it mean to be human the way Jesus says to be human? And the major problem that I see in this book and the, in the culture that we have is that we just don't see this kind of stuff within Jesus. He calls us to be radically different than what this story tells us men should be. And then, of course, what women should be as a result of that masculinity. Right. Uh, and I just, like, it drives me so crazy to have to convince people to be empathetic. This is something Ryan and I talk about all the time. And Ryan probably gets more frustrated I'm about exhausted. that. Than I do. <laughs> like so exhausted. Not think about yourself for a minute. I know it's really hard and I Could mean that just legitimately. Fucking try. You don't even have to be able to do it on your first time. Can you just give it a yeah. whirl? <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah, so uh, it's interesting cuz this book really um at least as far as I've gotten so far uh, has shown me that, you know, I want to rethink what it means not to be masculine, but what it means to be a human being in our culture and in, in our evangelical culture. And more especially, what can we do to move away from what we've been given? That's a common theme that we have. It's not everything that we do here on this podcast, but it comes up every once in a while. What can we do to move away? And I think Ryan and I, based off of our conversation, we want to move away from this masculinity. Um, it's not good for us. It's toxic it's, and damaging and traumatizing and harmful and nonsense, just in case yeah. you weren't clear on how I felt about it. <laughs> and so Ryan and I give you a couple ideas, um, but we're curious what your idea is. What what can you do or what are you doing to move away from this masculinity? Maybe um, this book, uh, this conversation has sparked your interest in this book so that you can see, especially if you're a male, that uh, you don't have to be this way. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's something really worth getting into. Now, you're in for a wild ride if you read this <laughs> book, but it's worth it. And, and I think I hope that it does. I guess I would say two things. One, I hope that it alleviates some of that fear and shame, not just reading the book, but I mean, you know, viewing mm -hmm. these things differently. Um, there's so much more freedom there. And and it, like shame and fear don't come from God. They're imposed upon us by ourselves and by other people. And so I hope it is liberating in that sense. But I also I hope it's also sobering in the sense of it doesn't take a rocket surgeon to then see that this view of masculinity has not only hurt men, although it certainly has, but you might even be able to argue, I, I think you could and maybe should argue that it's hurt others even more. So I mean, this has like abused women in such 
like oh gosh, unimaginable yeah. ways, right? We've told women that they are not people in the same way that men mm-hmm. are, that they're not worth it, they're not valuable, that God doesn't love them as much or in the same way, or God does, but only if, if you know, they have a man to like filter it to, to them or whatever. Obviously, it does. right. Yeah, exactly. We've made women sex objects. Well, some of us have, have made women sex objects, um, <laughs> you know, just for gratifying lust or desire. And then not to mention what this has done to people who don't uh, fall within specific gender roles that have been defined. It says that those people don't even have a right to exist. They are somehow not as good or less than. And not only is it bullshit, but we can't, if we say we follow Jesus and Jesus tells us to love everybody as we love ourselves, then we can't do this. People are people, regardless of what gender they identify as or were born as or um, are. We're all the same in that sense. God loves us the same. <laughs> and we should start doing we should start loving each other in that way. Again, I know this is like I thought that that is now not saying I always succeed, but I thought that that concept was kind of, you know, Christian 101, but maybe where we are these days is we got to go back to 100, I don't know. Um whatever's before 101. <laughs> um Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jesus really meant it when he said love everybody. And in the ways that Jesus taught us to do that. I think of uh, what's his face? Stanley on The Office. Did I stutter? <laughs> right. It's like, this seems fairly clear. You know, sometimes you can say, gosh, I read the Bible and I just don't know the answer. Or it's hard to understand what's being said here. None of this is hard to understand. Hard to do, but is not hard to understand. When Jesus says, love your enemies, every fucking one of us knows exactly what he means. It's just hard to do. So yeah. fine, it's hard to do and you're going to fail sometimes. But as I say, I feel like I say all the time these days, can we just fucking try? <laughs> and if we fail, then we fail and we work on it and we learn and we repent and we do all those we things. But you got to try. Right. <sighs> Sorry. Oh, I feel like I have to let a big sigh out after that one. Um, there's probably more that could be said. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to read this book. Again, it's called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Whether, like I said earlier, whether you agree with every particular she brings up or not, the thesis and main point she's making is something that we need to wrestle and grapple with and hopefully address and change because it's gone on for too long this this way that we've done this so we would love to hear from anybody who's listening uh if you've read the book or have questions about it or if you reacted to anything we said today and would like us to talk about it or just want us to know uh send us an email at frontierfaithpodcast at gmail.com and would love to interact with some of you about that especially interested also to hear from any women who like what your perspective on this stuff was nate and i are dudes so we can really only say we're both cis dudes right so we can really only say from that perspective but uh, i hope also like we said earlier i hope that it gives some people or somebody permission to be who you are whatever that means Uh, you know like you're okay as you are like whether that's manly or not (laughs) because i don't even think it's a thing uh, I, I will say just before we before I finish is that God loves you, all of you, whatever, whoever, however you are, it's okay. I mean, that's why I say at the end of these every week is that it's okay. It's because 
God's with you. God loves you. God even likes you. Well, think about that for a second. God's pulling for you and rooting for you, however you are, however you identify, whatever you think, whatever you, all of it, it's okay. So keep that in mind this week and let us know what you think, but it's okay. And I promise it's going to be okay. Even if we keep messing things up, it's going to be okay. And God will take care of us. 